Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, the Executive Director of the Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy and Energy Makes America Great. As you know, each week I write a column on a current energy issue that is published in a variety of outlets, including Breitbart.com, Townhall.com, and American Spectator at Spectator.org. This week, I was able to string together some stories that you may have missed. They were not big news stories, but when you string them together, I think they show a trend. I think they show an encouraging trend in government policy, particularly the government overreach that we've been seeing from Washington, D.C. And so my guests this week are going to be those that have expertise in one of these specific policies. So my first guest today is Kathleen Sagama, and she is the Vice President of Government and Public Affairs at the Western Energy Alliance. Interestingly, we're recording this very segment today from a ballroom at the New Mexico Oil and Gas Association's annual meeting where we're both in attendance. And I was pleased to see Kathleen here because I quoted her in my column, and I found this quote from Kathleen in the Wall Street Journal in an article titled, Federal Court Blocks Obama Administration's Fracking Rule. So Kathleen, thanks for joining us once again on America's Voice for Energy. Great to see you, Marita, and great to be on your show. Well, thank you. I think you've been on with us before, but I think it's been probably close to a year, if I recall. I don't even remember. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, this, this fracking rule that came out, in fact, this Wall Street Journal, Journal article that quotes you, is one of the reasons that I actually decided to go with the theme of my column this week, because this fracking rule it is such a big deal. And could you explain for our listeners what the, the federal government's goal in this rule is and, and uh, you know, why, why you are opposed to it? Well, I do agree with you, Marita. This is a big deal because the Obama administration has been looking at trying to control from the federal level hydraulic fracturing, and they've been trying to make a case that they need to do so, even though the states have been successfully regulating fracking for many decades. And they've done it successfully, so much so that EPA, even EPA recently admitted that there has been no widespread contamination from hydraulic fracturing. In essence, the EPA confirmed that states are doing a great job. So BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, had uh, proposed and finalized a rule to regulate fracking from the federal level on federal lands. And someone might think, oh, well, that seems reasonable, except for the fact that uh, companies already have to get state permits on federal lands. So in essence, what the federal government was doing, what BLM was doing in this instance, was just duplicating what states are already doing. Uh, meanwhile, BLM doesn't have the budget, it doesn't have the qualified petroleum engineering staff, it doesn't have the expertise like the states do. So it was really just a redundant rule. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I also have in front of me an article from Bloomberg Business on this very same issue. And uh, it says, in the article it says that if, 
if the federal uh, regulation had gone through that was designed to spur states to follow suit, Bloomberg Business says magnifying the impact and potentially slowing develop of oil and natural gas resources, which I believe is really a big part of the motivation behind this regulation. I do believe that the regulatory overreach we're seeing from the federal government is not about you know, really protecting the environment. It's really about making it more difficult for the industry to move forward and responsibly develop, whether that's on federal lands, where, of course, we're not talking about wilderness areas or natural, national parks. We're talking about lands, uh, 700 million acres throughout the American West, which are appropriate for energy development. Yeah, and I, th I think a lot of the public doesn't understand that when they hear federal lands. I think in their own mind, in the in the general public's mind, they're picturing Yosemite. Yes, Yosemite, Yellowstone, all those uh, iconic places. But of course, we're not allowed to drill in those areas, nor would we want to. Um, but there are hundreds of millions of acres all across the West, predominantly. Although there are some in the East as well, um, that are determined to be suitable for. Um, you know, for energy development. And there are many, many more acres that are protected from energy development. So on balance, uh, we protect many more acres than we actually allow to be developed. Now, so where do you see this going now? We've had this is the federal judge has overturned uh, the, the rule, uh, it, but does it go to Supreme Court? Where do we go next? So all that's happened so far is last Wednesday, a judge in the Wyoming District Court, that's a U.S. District Court of Wyoming, um, granted a preliminary injunction. So the rule, which was supposed to go into effect on June 24th of this year, has now been stayed indefinitely until the full case can be heard, so that we're in court and do the full briefings, the full hearings, and that will take many months. Can you clarify something for me? You said this rule was supposed to go into effect in June, but yet this federal judge just just issued this preliminary junk, uh, in, injunction a few days ago. So what's happened between June and now? So on June 23rd, the day before the rule was supposed to go into effect, he um, ordered it to be stayed temporarily until the BLM delivered the full administrative record on the rule. And uh. any time a federal agency um, goes through rulemaking, they are supposed to keep good track of all the information that went into their decision-making process. They were unable to deliver that record to the, ju to the judge until August 28th. So... Um, after that was delivered, he, you know, he looked at that information, and he decided on the 28th, or I mean last Wednesday, that he would um, deliver, uh, he would grant a preliminary injunction, and so that took it from a temporary stay until uh, more of a permanent stay until he has fully ruled on the full merits of the case. So we expect that case to go forward in his courtroom. Um, what we also anticipate is that the government or the environmental groups who intervened on the government's behalf may try to appeal his decision on the preliminary injunction to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. They have 60 days to do so, and if they did and they were successful, then that might overturn our preliminary injunction. But we are very hopeful that even an appeal would um, hold up and that our preliminary injunction will stay until such time that the case can be heard on the full merits of it. And when, do you have any idea when you think that's likely to be? 
I think sometime in the spring. It usually takes several months to fully brief a case, and you know, because you, you issue uh, initial briefs, and then the government has a chance to respond, and then there's back and forth. It just takes a while for things to work through the courts. So I think the earliest we would see a full ruling on this would be sometime in the spring, maybe the March timeframe. And do you think that will be the end of it, or do you think we're going to go to a higher court? Um, I think that it would be appealed to the Tenth Circuit. I, I do. I think this will be tied up in courts for a while. Now the question becomes, if we lose on the full merits, which seems unlikely given how strong this judge, um, his ruling was very strong. It was very much, this is overreached by the federal government. BLM doesn't have the authority to regulate fracking. It doesn't have that, con you know, Congress never granted it that authority. So I think this judge has made his ruling pretty clear, but that could change. You know, that's not a given. But let's just say that he does indeed rule uh, kind of the same way that he ruled on his preliminary injunction, and he says this rule is overturned. It is almost certain that the Obama administration would appeal that. Yeah, in fact, you mentioned his strong uh, opinion. Uh, the, what, one of the things that he said in his 54-page decision is Congress has not authorized or delegated to the BLM authority to regulate hydraulic fracturing, and under our constitutional structure, it is only through congressional action that the BLM can acquire this authority. And I agree with you, that's, that's very, very strong wording on his part, that they don't have the authority uh, to do this. So I appreciate you bringing us up to date on that. We've got a few minutes left, if you don't mind. I'd like to kind of jump to the waters of the U.S. rule, because you and I just finished listening to New Mexico Secretary of the Environment, uh, Ryan Flynn, and we heard Governor Martinez this morning speaking, and both of them emphasized the importance of the regulations coming from the state body versus the federal government, and that's really what what the waters of the U.S. rule, uh, you know, is, is, is doing. It's putting federal regulation over, um, over onto the states. And in, in, in the Wall Street Journal, it says, referring to last month's court order blocking EPA's water rule, Ms. Sagama added... We hope BLM, EPA, and other agencies that are rushing to implement even more regulations on the very businesses that create jobs will pause and actually to follow the law and regulatory procedure. Uh, where do you see these overreaching uh, regulations going in the future? Well, I think we're reaching the the, the the swing of the pendulum has happened. I think the overreach that we've seen from this administration, kind of the hubris that they could just about do anything they wanted, has kind of quickly turned around. And they're realizing that they just can't slam into place these rules without proper procedure and without, frankly, following the law. So they've been trying to do many things that are a real stretch uh, legally. And I think they're starting to see, you know what, we can't jam these things through if we actually want to be successful. If we want to just spend the next several years in court, that, you know, if that's our goal, then we'll proceed forward. But if what we want to do is actually put in place our agenda, then I think they're going to probably have to be a little bit more careful, and they're just going to run out of time. 
Yeah, and I think that's what we saw with the sage grouse listing that we're going to address in, a, in another segment with a different guest of the show today. But I think had these series of um, overturns uh, pushback from the courts not happened, uh, particularly the lesser prairie chicken listing that we'll talk about again with a, another guest, uh, but if you want to comment on that, you're welcome to as well. But I, I think that we would have seen the sage-grouse listed as an endangered species had there not been kind of this tide of pushback. Well, we did get a good decision in that the Interior Department decided that sage-grouse is not warranted for listing. But what they did is they put in so many onerous restrictions in federal land use plans that they kind of got uh, almost a regulation that's, wor that's worse than a federal listing one could argue. So we're really seeing how they said, okay, it's not warranted, but through the back door with those federal land use plans, they are locking up lands from productive users like ranchers, mining, and energy development. Yeah, and we certainly heard in the presentation we heard today that that was, you know, the bureaucrats that were in the department, that was really pretty much their mindset, and I believe that that's a national mindset, not just a New Mexico mindset. Absolutely. This is coming down from the top in Washington. Yeah. Well, Kathleen Sagama from the Western Energy Alliance, I appreciate you taking your time to talk to us today about these important issues dealing with energy, and uh, we'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. This week we're talking about what I'm calling five victories for responsible land use. And one of those victories you're probably not aware of, but is near and dear to my heart, is the Mexican gray wolf reintroduction into New Mexico. And this is something that, that took place um, in 1998, I believe, and I've got friends that are ranchers in the area where these wolves are, and they've told me very scary stories about the safety of their family and their cattle uh, because of these predators being released into areas where humans um, 
our presence. And I find it to be a very scary situation. And I'm grateful that uh, one of the stories I cover in my column is that the New Mexico Game Commission told the federal government, you may not release those wolves into New Mexico. You may not do this. And so to talk to us about it, I have with us today one of the members of the New Mexico Game Commission, and that is Elizabeth Ryan, someone I happen to know and was grateful to see her involvement in this particular issue. So Beth, thanks for joining us today to talk about this very important issue. You bet. I'm glad to be here. So tell us about, uh, you know, the background of this story. I understand that uh, you all as the commission voted to uphold what the director voted on or decided in June. That's correct. The the background is in 1982, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife created what it called a a Mexican gray wolf recovery plan for a a non-essential experimental population um, that included mostly land in Arizona, but some in New Mexico. And in 1998, they wrote what they call the 10J rule, um, which is published in the Federal Register and codified. And it and it created certain recovery areas, um, again mostly in Arizona and with one small area in New Mexico where they would release these gray wolves to try to bring them up to a certain population level, which the 1982 uh, recovery program said was about 100 wolves. Well, now they've reached that, uh, that limit, their goals, and they've continued to apply uh, to the uh, New Mexico Game and Fish Department for permits to release the wolves. The statutes require that U.S. Fish and Wildlife obtain a permit from the game uh, department before they're allowed to release wolves. So that's what they did, and the director denied those permits based on the uh, lack of the lack of a of a full recovery plan um, in the 1998 10J rule, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service stated that it needed a revised recovery plan that set forth specific goals and scientific studies that reflected the that would reflect the impacts of the release of these wolves on certain economies, on um, the ungulate population, on the nearby uh, cattle uh, ranch and sheep populations that it, it needed to be uh, more fully vetted. And we, they are supposed to come out with a new plan in a couple years, or in 2017, rather. Um, and the, the director denied those permits based on lack of information on the effect the wolves um, would have. And that's why she denied. And then the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service appealed that denial to the commission. And we sat as an appellate review board to review that decision under the arbitrary and capricious standard. You know, it's interesting you mentioned arbitrary and capricious because in my column this week I talk about these five different uh, cases and the wolves is one of them and federal judges in at least two of the other cases said that the uh, federal government's action was arbitrary and capricious. Well, it's it's a I, I think it's a very difficult I would 
I don't know those other two cases in particular, but when um, I'm reviewing what our New Mexico statutes and regulations tell us is that um, an arbitrary, it's arbitrary capricious when there is no rational connection between the facts found and choices made or the necessary aspects of consideration or relevant factors are omitted. And even if there is room for two opinions, um, the action is not necessarily arbitrary capricious if it was exercised honestly and upon due consideration, even if another conclusion could have been reached. So you can see that it's a very um, difficult standard in my eyes to overcome because even if I look at it and think, okay, if, if a reasonable person would have maybe made a different decision than the director, was the director's decision based on some kind of set of rational reason and facts. And if there is some sort of reasoning for the director's decision, then we should uphold that decision and give deference to the department's discretion on that. So um, in, in my eyes and all the you know, case law that's out there defining on what that standard is, um, our commission uh, applied that standard and found that she relied had a reasonable and rational basis that she relied on, and we we affirmed her decision to deny those now, permits. And, and the commission affirmed this decision seven to zero, so we had no controversy on this. No, no controversy on the commission itself. No, but there was controversy. So I read about uh, that. You know, you all have been called nasty names, and yesterday I, I, I'm. Re recording this segment while I'm participating in the New Mexico Oil and Gas Association annual meeting. And yesterday, I heard Ryan Flynn, uh, Secretary of the Environment Department, speak. And he's talked about that his home has been vandalized twice. His car is routinely vandalized by environmentalists who were unhappy with his decisions. And, and I know that you all faced an angry crowd. We did. We faced an angry crowd of, of people at several of our commission meetings this year. And, you know, there's always going to be people on both sides of an issue. But um, to for people to um, come back with death threats to people on the commission and so forth, um, it really and, and has, is that what has a whole other level. All, yes. You all have received yes. death threats? Yes, yes. We received them in person um, last month, and um, I, I was personally accosted, actually, in the uh, ladies' restroom uh, last month when on a break, just trying to take a break. Um, so, it, yeah, it, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, we can't just disagree and, and try to work through these issues together, that it really rises to a whole different level of... Um, irrationality and, and nasty of ugliness that, that, you know, that I would never consider doing um, in disagreement with someone else, you know. You can disagree. Yeah, I but, agree but with you. I, just find it, I find it so baffling. <laughs> it is. It's baffling. It's baffling that there are people out there that take it to that level. It really is. So tell us what happened at the hearing. Well, at this most recent hearing, um, there were about 100 protesters that wanted us to release these wolves. And I think what there was a lack of understanding about was that we did not have the authority to tell the director um, 
to make a value judgment on whether the recovery program is is good or bad or whether the direction that view of fish and wildlife is good or bad um, we you know we were sitting as an appellate board so our instruction was to say did she have a reasonable and rational basis for her decision we weren't there to make a value judgment um, on u.s fish and wildlife now that could be something um, in the future or it, it certainly will probably be vetted in the court system now, uh, but but we were simply there to decide the question: Did the director have a reasonable and rational basis for her decision? And so that's how we came to our decision. But what was the crowd's response? Well, of course, we we got booed and hackled and. Um, it was very interesting. There were lots of howling like wolves in wolf costumes, and uh, Little Red Riding Hood even showed up to make an appearance, um, which is which is all fine. I mean, everybody has the right to come and make comment, and if they disagree with the direction something's going, they certainly um, ha have the um, ability, uh, because they live in this wonderful country of ours, to make that known. Um, but I do think there was a lack of understanding of what the commission's role is in this particular issue. We weren't there to decide whether the value of the recovery, pro whether there was any value to the recovery program. We were simply there to say, did the director have any rational basis? And we found that, that she did. And so okay. we affirmed her decision. And so what's, what, uh, well, before I move on to this, I just want to comment one thing. I was at a, a hearing um, a year or so ago in Santa Fe uh, over solar energy issues. And I found that the, the supporters of the issue were so kind of mob mentality, and this is what I'm hearing in, in your comments, that they, mm -hmm. they were so much mob mentality that anyone who had the other opinion uh, felt kind of shamed, like you were afraid to speak up for, for fear of being accosted in the restroom. Or I know when I left that hearing, I was truly afraid uh, that my car would be keyed or that my tires would be slashed. Now, nothing did happen, but I did speak up at that hearing for the view from the other side. Did you have anyone from the other side on this wolf issue? Um. Yes, we had about 100 uh, people on the other side of this issue attend this last meeting where we deliberated and made this decision, this 7 to 0 decision. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, I just decided um, that I would speak up and apply the legal standard that we were instructed and that I was ready, you know, I wasn't going to be intimidated by anybody in the room and that it's always right to do the right thing and that we have to stand up and and do that, otherwise we will be overrun by the, the, the mob, um, this mob mentality. And so that's, that's what we did, and that's what the whole commission did, 7 to 0 vote, um, stood up despite the, the, the mob that was in the room. So I was, I was very proud. Um, I didn't know what, how the other commissioners would vote, uh, but we ended up all standing together and saying this is the right, this is the right thing. Now, in the commission meeting, was there a discussion? Did you address this arbitrary and capricious issue, as you told us here, or, or what, did you all just come in, vote, and slam the gavel? 
Well, um, we had we had, had a previous the previous hearing was at the time that the commission could ask questions and where the record uh -huh. was open. We asked for. Um, each side, both U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the Game Department, to brief the issue, brief the issues for us and provide. Uh, we kept the record open until just a few days before this most recent hearing in um, September, and so the record didn't close till just the Friday before the hearing, and. Um, so when we arrived at the hearing, we did not re because the record was closed. We did not take public comment at that time, yeah, right, although right. we previously had when the record was open. Um, so we're about out of time, Beth. Where do we go from here? We, I've only got well, a few seconds I, left. I, I bet U.S. Fish and Wildlife um, takes it takes it to court uh, and it tries to federally preempt the decision. I I expect that that's where it's going to go. We're going to be in All the right. court system. Well, we'll watch for it. Elizabeth Ryan, thank you for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy and sharing the kind of the inside story on what happened with this decision. We'll be back in just a moment. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. This segment, I'm pleased to have back with us Brian Seasholes, who is the director of the Endangered Species Project at the Reason Foundation. And in my column this week, I talked specifically about two endangered species issues. First, I talked about a federal judge overturning the Obama administration's 2014 listing for the lesser prairie chicken. And then the decision a few couple weeks, or just a few days ago, actually, uh, not to list the sage grouse as endangered. And Brian is, is up to speed on all of these matters, and so I, I'm delighted to have him with us to, to address both of these issues. So, Brian, welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be here. So I see these two things as being connected, because I believe that had the lesser prairie chicken listing not been overturned, that the sage grouse would have uh, received an endangered species listing. But I think, uh, and this is just my personal opinion, but I think that because the lesser prairie chicken listing was overturned and the sage-grouse conservation efforts are comparable, that the, the Interior Department saw kind of the writing on the wall and said, if we list this, a federal judge is going to overturn it. Well, how do you see these two things connect? Or do you see they connect? 
I think that they're broadly connected. I don't know necessarily in that way. Um, what I think was going on with the greater sage grouse is that it, it actually goes back to last November. And that's when the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service decided to list a species called the Gunnison sage grouse. It's kind of like the first cousin of the greater sage grouse that lives in southwestern Texas and southeastern Utah. Relatively small population, isolated. Um, and it caused an uproar. And it resulted in a lawsuit, believe it or not, from Governor uh, John Hickenlooper of Colorado. He's a loyal Democrat suing the Obama administration. Um, and so it caused a great deal of discomfort within the Interior Department and even in the White House uh, because this looks bad politically. So then fast forward to this spring. In April, there was another listing decision for something called the bi-state population of the greater sage-grouse. There's a little population of the greater sage-grouse that lives along the uh, Nevada and California border. It's eligible for kind of a separate listing under the Endangered Species Act for some technical reasons that I won't bore your listeners with. But anyway, that was eligible for listing, and the Interior Department decided not to list it. And the widespread thought was that they decided not to list it because they didn't want to risk another lawsuit and an embarrassment. So then what happens now on September 22nd with the greater sage-grouse across its entire range? Now we're talking about 11 states, 165 million acres. This is kind of the main event. The first two things I talked about were sort of the uh, undercard, if you will. And so what I think is that the, the political calculus, which I think was ultimately driving this, was that they did not want to list the greater sage-grouse in the Endangered Species Act or proposed to list it. That's what really happened. This is about a listing proposal because of the potential uh, political repercussions. And so what has also been going on for the past two years is kind of a parallel process is the Interior Department has been revising 98 land use and resource management plans that govern the use of federal lands, over 100 million acres of federal lands, in the greater sage-grouse's range. And so they took these 98 plans and they kind of mashed them all together and came up with 15 kind of mega, if you will, sage-grouse-specific plans. And so what happened then on September 22nd is that Sally Jewell, the Interior Secretary in Colorado, stood up there and said, hey, we have a great triumph here. We're not listing the greater sage-grouse because we've had this great conservation effort. Uh, but what she didn't say is instead what we're in effect substituting for a listing are these 15 amended federal land use plans that are extremely onerous, have, are sort of, if you will, uh, an Endangered Species Act-like listing, in effect, and in some ways are worse than enlisting under the Endangered Species Act. So that's what I think has kind of been going on. I think that the lesser prairie chicken did play a role. I think it's uh, maybe relatively uh, minor. Well, let's go back to the lesser prairie chicken for just a moment because uh, chronologically that did come first. That there, there were a lot of, you know, it was listed in 2014 as an endangered species. There were a lot of uh, cooperative conservation efforts between the oil and gas industry, the wind industry, ranchers, farmers, to um, preserve habitat for the lesser prairie, ch I mean, yeah, the lesser prairie chicken, and uh, they listed it anyway. What happened? Well, I mean, <laughs> you 
you know, interior will basically do uh, whatever it feels like. And I think you go back to the Gunnison sagebrush, which I referenced in November of 2014, uh, even though the state of Colorado, that's where the vast majority of the species lives, spent over $50, $50 million over 20 years, did amazing conservation for this species, did everything the federal government asked of them and even more, uh, much more extensive and longer-term conservation of the lesser prairie chicken, and that still was not enough to stave off a listing. So I think that the lesser prairie chicken is linked to the sage-grouse issue and that it shows the massive overreach uh, of the Obama administration in that um, the Gunnison sage-grouse listing in November 2014 resulted in a lawsuit. Uh, so the lesser prairie chicken listing um, that was even before that in March 2014, but now has resulted in a subsequent lawsuit. And what's going to happen now with the greater sage-grouse and these 15 amended uh, federal land use plans is there are going to be massive lawsuits over these. Idaho has already filed suit. Two Nevada counties have filed suit. It's widely thought that Utah is going to file suit. So what I think that the sort of the bigger picture that emerges from kind of sage-grouse and lesser prairie chicken is this massive, massive overreach by the Obama administration. And as a result now, you're having lawsuits because states, counties, uh, and the regulated community are pushing back and saying, no, we can conserve these species. We can conserve it better than the federal government. If you leave us alone, we've got a really good plan. We've got great science. Uh, but actually, the federal approach, which is top-down regulatory command and control from Washington, D.C., is going to be uh, actually harmful to these largely state-based and regional conservation efforts. Yeah, and that's obviously the theme of my whole column this week is this federal overreach. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a cheerleader. I try to be an optimist and look for the good in these things, the overall good. And so that's what I see is that this, just like you're saying there, the overreach has been so excessive that the states and others are finally uh, pushing back against them, and, and they're having some successes in the courts. They are, and I think that what we're seeing uh, with the Gunnison sage-grouse, uh, that lawsuit was filed in February of this year. Now we have the Lesser Prairie Chicken uh, lawsuit that was filed this summer, and now we've just had in um, late September, early October, the first lawsuits filed over the greater sage-grouse. Um, and I think one thing that emerges that a lot of people don't hear so much in the mainstream media because this is usually posed as kind of industry versus the interior department or economic development versus the uh, preservation of the environment. And But what I think that the, the real story is is that states and others are pushing back to say, we actually have a superior way of conserving these species and also trying to balance the conservation of these species with economic development, and that the Interior Department is coming in and sort of like the bull in the china shop, just screwing everything up and really um, damaging these conservation efforts that are quite successful and that have been oftentimes going for a long time, especially in the case of the greater sage-grouse and the gunnison sage-grouse. 
so where do you see all of this going? I mean, you focus, like I focus strictly on energy issues, you focus strictly on endangered species issues. So, you know, you're kind of really the, the expert to talk to about these things. Um, obviously, I, I assume the, the long-term goal is uh, legislative reform of the Endangered Species Act. Yeah, I mean, that that's the ultimate solution. I mean, lawsuits are one, uh, they're not really a solution, they're more of a reaction. Uh, because it's, it's the lawsuits from the environmental groups that have given the deadlines that the Interior Department must make a decision on a listing like the sage-grouse. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I wouldn't call them environmental groups. I call them environmental lawsuit mills. Cause these yes, groups, that's true. Uh, these groups don't do, uh, essentially, don't do any real environmental work. Most of these so-called environmental groups don't do any work. They do what I call armchair or paper conservation. Uh, they sit around and they file lawsuits and press releases and reports, and they give nice sound bites and do media stuff, but that doesn't, that's not conservation on the ground. On the ground conservation is done by farmers, ranchers, and other folks who are doing the good work of real conservation. Get your boots dirty, get finger... Uh, get dirt under your fingernails. So these groups that are forcing this are just, this is a kind of a game for them. Uh, and they sort of get, you know, notches on their belt, but this is not about real conservation. Yeah, I, I, I often cite uh, the Center for Biological Diversity, and if you look at their website and you look at their staff page, uh, I don't know what the current numbers are, but it's, there's something like three biologists and 70 lawyers. Yeah, they have about 100 staff, um, and so, yeah, I mean, they're just, they're doing really conservation. So I think the ultimate, to get back to your question, I think the ultimate solution for this is legislative, um, and I think there's there's a variety of things that can be done, uh, and it, there's been a variety of efforts over the past several decades. Unfortunately, none, none of them terribly successful, uh, and so the problem with trying to reform uh, the Endangered Species Act is that uh, the people who are interested in reform uh, tend to pitch it as we have to reform it because of its impacts on people, meaning jobs, the economy, the regulated community, whatnot, and the folks who defend the Endangered Species Act paint it as an environmental issue. So I would just say if folks want to reform the Endangered Species Act, they have to make it an environmental issue, not a regulatory or human impact issue. Yeah, and I think even if we were able to get a reform bill, which I know has been talked about in Congress in this session, if we were able to get that through both the House and the Senate, I'm pretty confident that President Obama would veto it. Yeah, I mean, it would never get through the Senate. Um, I mean, this is a real hot-button third-rail issue. Uh, I think we'd get a completely new approach, because as long as you talk about the Endangered Species Act, you're dealing in the comfort zone of the folks who defend this law, which is, I think, uh, very harmful to the very species it's supposed to protect. So I think if we start with a clean slate, new approach, talk about how best to actually conserve species instead of file lawsuits, then we can get some more politically. Yeah, we're about out of time, Brian. Tell, tell our listeners how they can get a hold of your commentaries that you, you publish frequently on this, these issues. Uh, if you just search my name uh, in Google, and if you go to the reason, R-E-A-S-O-N dot O-R-G website, I'm also on Twitter, 
with my name, Brian Seasholes. Um, I tweet occasionally, so I'm out there doing stuff, Good. trying to move the needle. Well, I appreciate it, and thanks for taking your time to join us today on America's Voice for Energy. All right, thanks a lot. Take care. Perfect. Love it. Thank you. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government as well as those involved in legal cases have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. This is going to be our final segment for today's show where we've been talking about some victories that we've had in the area of responsible land use. We've talked about endangered species issues, the fracking rule, and then we talked last with Beth Ryan, who is a game commissioner in the state of New Mexico and was part of the, the vote that uh, supported the director's decision not to allow the Fish and Wildlife Service to introduce more Mexican gray wolves in, into southeastern New Mexico, particularly the Gila Forest. And now we're going to talk with Laura Schonberger Bryant. And Laura, is a, her, her family has a ranch in southeastern New Mexico, and they are directly impacted by the release of these wolves. And so she's going to tell us, you know, what it's really like and how it impacts those who are trying to earn a living in that part of the country. So Laura, welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Thank you. And I think you were with us, um, what, about six months ago when I wrote a piece, or maybe it was even longer ago than that, where I specifically addressed uh, the the forest, the Fish and Wildlife Service wolf reintroduction plan and uh, how it was going to impact New Mexico. Is that correct? Yeah. We did, we did an interview coming on to a year ago, probably. Well, you know, you're, you're kind of my go-to person on this because you've been so hands-on in this issue because you live there, and it directly impacts your children and your livelihood. Yeah, we've, we've been uh, impacted by this, this program for almost 18 years now. Wow. 
So give us an overview of what the program is for those who are not familiar with it. Well, um, in 1998, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, through a settlement with some environmental groups that sued them, implemented the Mexican Wolf Reintroduction Program, and they were basing that program off of a recovery plan that was put together in 1982 by a team of wildlife biologists um, looking at the feasibility of a, a recovery for the Mexican gray wolf in the wilds of its historic habitat. And uh, we had the re recovery program, I mean, the reintroduction program began in 1998. And since then, it's just been a absolute disaster for the people on the ground who are living in wolf country. And it's mostly unmitigated and not addressed. The media doesn't talk about the actual impacts. They just talk about the fluffy stuff that's done through press release from these environmental organizations who were the people who were settling with the Fish and Wildlife Service. So right now we're still, we're still operating off of a 1982 recovery plan that has never been updated, even though they've had two full recovery teams, one in, I believe, 2007 and one in 2010. And so they spent all this money doing two new recovery plans, but they won't use them. And that's why the agency, the New Mexico Department of Game and Fish, was so adamant about no more wolf releases. They believe that this recovery plan is so woefully out of date that it is causing problems in the program that they can't mitigate. Now, help me understand, what, what about it is so woefully out of date? Well... For one thing, the agency has gone through an entirely new NEPA process, the 1998 uh, NEPA analysis that allowed them to put forth a plan to release 100 wolves into the Blue Range Wolf Recovery Area, which is portions of Arizona and New Mexico, small, relatively small portions compared to what they are now. Um, that plan was based on the 1982 recovery plan, which recommended only 100 wolves in the wild as a recovery number. And then after that, it was up to the wolves to go ahead and procreate, thrive or not thrive. As it, Once they hit 100 wolves, it was supposed to be over with. Well, a couple of years ago, they started a new NEPA process to get a new rule to allow for expansion of the program and more wolves, yet they have never done the basic base recovery plan that showed the scientific need for more wolves or the scientific um, pros and cons of what war more wolves would do to the infrastructure of the state, whether it be uh, economic or wildlife or livestock or, or the human impact. They've never put forth a real scientific document saying recovery should look like this, we need this many animals for it to be self-sustaining, but they have never done any of that. They've done the work from a biological perspective and had two recovery plans come out that the public has never seen, and they're sitting on those. And why do you think they're sitting on those? I think that just from some of the scientists that I know that have participated in the recovery plan and some of the actual um, papers that they have written, I think it's a pretty biased high number of wolves they want to put in the wild in order to ensure um, wildlife biologists' success in, in the Southwest. I mean, it, it's basically a self-serving plan that allows for 
um, a maximum number of wolves instead of a number of wolves that is sustainable with the human element. So I think that removing people from the land is part of that plan. And some of those people that would be removed from the land are you and your family and your ranch. Absolutely. You know, you, you are aware of what has been going on in, in, in California with the shutdown of the water and the Delta smelt and, and the endangered species. Sure. Yes, it's similar to that. So environmentalism and wolf recovery would take precedent over human stability. And, and over so many of you who have been ranching there uh, for generations. Well, yes, that's the example we've seen for the last 18 years is, is that it's been extremely difficult to get any reaction out of the Fish and Wildlife Service towards mitigating livestock depredation and even human impacts. Even when, you know, we have situations with, with wolves in communities and, and wolves behaving in habituated problem ways, it's been very difficult to get the agency to respond. There's been only one instance where I know of that a wolf has been shot for being in a yard with children. And what happens under such circumstances? Well, the agency usually tries to keep from doing anything. They want as many wolves on the ground as possible because they have, uh, they have a PR topic that the organizations that support this have put forth that say that they don't have the gene pool in the wild. Well, we knew that in the very beginning, which is why we should never have started this program. This was a zoo species. They were only rare because there were so few samples in the wild they couldn't get a genetically viable population. And now they're saying that they need more of the same animals to be put out to make sure that the gene pool is as, as flexible as it could possibly be. Well, it's still a population of wolves that were, were brought about by one female. So basically, it's not ever going to be a population of wolves that has genetic diversity. It never was, it never will be, and just simply putting more of the same genetics on the ground isn't going to make that happen. That's a complicated issue, the whole, that whole genetic gene pool thing. I don't quite, uh, I really honestly don't understand it all. It really is, and I'm not a geneticist, and I, you know, <laughs> I, do, I do know that you don't just keep breeding back to the same family members and expect your gene pool to get better. It doesn't. Yeah. So tell us about, tell me about, uh, we're about halfway through our, a little more than halfway through our time here, and I want to get to some of the, the human impacts on how does this impact you and your, your neighbors and other ranchers. I know I've been involved um, with this topic for a while uh, and, and talked to you on it, but uh, tell, us, tell me some of the human impacts that uh, you all feel. Well, one, one example I can cite is that, you know, when you read the newspapers and you read all the stories out there about Mexican wolves, it's mostly just pie in the sky. This is so, so neat. This is such a, a romantic animal. And you don't ever see the impact to the people that are, are having to live with it. And the animal itself may be a really, really interesting creature, but the fact is, is when I went to, to help do the, the research for how many livestock depredations the two states have suffered in the last, um, you know, 10 years of this program, I came up with close to 2,500 animals. Really? Yes. 
Yes, and that's just talking to everyone who has had wolf depredations on them. The bare minimum of wolf depredation is actually confirmed and reimbursed. It is so small, it's infinitesimal, yet the actual losses are a lot larger, maybe even 10% larger. So what are the numbers that uh, Fish and Wildlife Service quotes as to how much livestock has been killed uh, from these wolves? You know, I, I don't have it in front of me, but it, it is about 200 animals since the beginning. And you believe it to be more in the 2,500 range? Oh, we, we know. We know it has been because their policies for depredation confirmation, they made up themselves so they don't have to confirm most of them. You know, you know that when you have one confirmed wolf kill in a 10-square-mile area, and you have caught the wolves on it, you've brought in the agencies that, that do the necropsy, you have confirmed that it is indeed a wolf kill, and you have surrounding that particular kill, you have six more cows that should have calves on them and don't, and are wet and still making milk, you know those are wolf kills, but only one out of the, of the seven is confirmed. Oh. We just have a couple minutes. That's how those numbers get so high. Right. Because you, you've talked to the people on the ground that tell you the stories of, well, we've had this case and this case and this case happen. Well, sure. And even the professionals that do the necropsies can see. But the standards are written by Fish and Wildlife Service so that these other animals cannot be confirmed or added to the database. So we've just got like a minute and a half left. What about children? Oh, well, that's kind of hard. I mean, you know, the Fish and Wildlife Service don't acknowledge that there is a problem. And we have, we have had wolves show up at bus stops. We have had to build shelters in Katrin County for the kids in, in the little rural areas because they are small, teeny little towns that run along canyon bottoms, which is, you know, where predators like wolves travel. And when they don't stay in the wilderness, and none of them do, I don't know why, they just don't, they migrate out to the big plains areas and areas where there's small towns and we have had we've got picture evidence of, of wolves at school buses we have had a child who had her dogs attacked in front of her while she was nearly going down the fence line to let the horses into the horse trap she was 50 yards from her front door and a wolf attacked her dog in front of her she was eight years old and you know those, those things have happened the agency really does very little about it Less than a month later, that same wolf pack came into the house and killed her, her riding animal, her horse, in its corral. Wow. Yes. Very traumatic for our kids. Yeah. This Laura, we're, we're basically out of time. Is there somewhere our listeners can go to get more information? Oh, at this point, um, no, I think our website is shut down. There are, are some areas to get it. Um, I know that Southern Arizona Cattlemen's Protective Association has sort of taken over some of the data on our website. I'd suggest them. I'd suggest New Mexico Cattle Growers has some information. They have some on their website. Um, and I believe Arizona cattle growers is a pretty good source at this point. But there are a lot of people out there who are now, I mean, the, the problem is just expanded. It has not gotten better. And to throw more wolves at it is just going to make it so much bigger. So so many more people are getting on the bandwagon and, and putting real information out there. And uh, I think it's, it's just 
wonderful that a lot of people are, are paying attention to what's actually going on. I think that's what happened with our game commission is they were paying attention and they don't see the mitigation happening and so they decided they would take a stand and they just want to see some more science come out and science that's geared towards mitigating the actual problems. Yeah. Well, we're out of time, Laura. I appreciate you joining us today on America's Voice for Energy on America's Web Radio. Thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just